Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. You may have also seen me recently as a contributor at The Dispatch. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about why Congress has to pass another relief bill. Even though we already have a $2.2 trillion relief bill in place, they are very likely going to need to pass something else in order for people to survive over the next month or two. The second column I wrote about this week was about China's global charm offensive and how they're trying to show why they should be trusted over the United States internationally in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. And then finally, in the newsletter this week, I posted a timeline of the World Health Organization dragging its feet on COVID-19 and protecting China in the process. In every situation where the choice was protecting the Communist Chinese Party or pushing forward health initiatives that would have prevented the spread of the coronavirus, the World Health Organization chose China every step of the way. So that's what I had in the newsletter. If any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you. So just make sure to sign up for that and you'll get it for free. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews really help out a lot, and they help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I always look forward to getting that feedback from you. Some of you guys just text it to me or message it to me, and I look forward to hearing that too. The reviews also help others find me, so that's always good to see. So this week's show, we're continuing to cover the impacts of the coronavirus this week. It's the day in and day out thing that's impacting everyone's lives right now. So that's what we're going to cover here. And right now, America is entering the two most consequential weeks nationally. We finally have enough testing going on, and we have a good idea of where the virus is spreading and where it's heading. And so right now, these next two weeks, we're going to learn whether or not our actions make a difference, specifically whether or not our our non-pharmaceutical um, strategies where we're trying to use social distancing, hand washing, and other things to slow this down. We're going to learn whether or not that's actually working this week because the results of the last two or three weeks, this is when you're really going to start seeing it because we're going to start hitting peak if you look at the models. And we'll get more into the models here in a little bit. But first up, we're going to talk through the top line numbers and the lessons that you can draw from them. And then we're going to talk through, after that, the economic impacts of this coronavirus, which continue to just run rampant throughout the country. And so it's worth separating the two out. That's sort of what I've done the last two or three weeks. We're going to continue that this week and just sort of talk through each one in turn. So with that, we'll start with the top line numbers. The big story, aside from all these numbers, over the weekend was that uh, United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson was hospitalized after testing positive about 7 10 days ago. He is now in the hospital because of this virus. The Queen gave a statement over there trying to get everyone, you know, in the right spirit and the right frame of mind. So, it's a very situation uh, it's a very serious situation over there and it's a very si- serious situation over here. Like I said in the introduction, we've entered the peak month for COVID-19. 
the spread is either going to start leveling off here this week or we're going to see it grow exponentially and we'll know that we are going to have to do far more to stop this and what we're doing now. So this is where we're going to learn because this is we're hitting the point where all the models generally agree that at some point this week and going into next week, we're going to hit the peak of this virus where you're going to see the maximum amount of cases being found every day and also the maximum amount of people dying from it every day. So these are those two weeks. And so we're going to find out if all the hard work we've been doing and all the hard work everyone's been doing, staying home, if that's going to work out. So the top line numbers right now, and I pulled these from the COVID tracking project as I've done every week. Right now we have 1.8 million tests run overall. That includes all positive and all negative, and I believe it also includes tests that are pending. There was a big drop this week in the number of pending tests. For about a couple weeks there, we had between 50 to 60,000 tests that were always in a backlog, where there were always pending results, and this week that finally dropped down below 20,000, so that means that a huge backlog was finally cleared through the system. It also probably means that we're also finally seeing some of these faster tests start to come through, so we're seeing more results and faster testing take place, so that's a good thing. So that, but that also means we have more positive tests. So that means this week we're up to 332,000 positive tests across the United States. 41,000 people are hospitalized, and 9,500 people and change. There's a few, a little bit above that, have died from this virus. So we're running about 140,000 tests a day right now. That seems to be our new our new top line, our ceiling on how many people we can test each day, which is a very, very good ceiling to have. I thought we needed to get above at least 120, 130,000 and push as close to 150 as we could. And this, this looks like it's going to be it, and that is a very good place to be. It could go even higher, especially if we start seeing some of these five-minute tests get out into the field and widespread use. That could really crank the results that we're seeing. So what we have now is finally an acceptable level of testing. We're now testing on, at a level that puts us on par or above any European country and puts us on pace to hit where, what South Korea did. So we're in a good spot there finally. We're outperforming all these other countries. So that allows us to assess how big the scope of this is and also it allows us to track those who test positive, even if they're asymptomatic. Because if the person is asymptomatic, you don't want them wandering around, especially because they are far more likely to infect somebody than someone who feels sick and then quarantines themselves. So a lot of this testing is about getting it out freely enough to where anyone who has been in contact with somebody can get tested. And that allows us to test and trace. That's what the South Koreans did. They tested everybody they could, and then they traced the steps of anyone who had a positive step, a positive test, to see where they went. So that allows you to get the sick people quarantined, and then that allows you to say to all the healthy people, okay, you guys don't have to worry as much. And so the better your testing numbers are, the more the, the better odds you have of reopening your economy. Because if you're just flying blind, like we have been doing for the past almost month and a half now, you have to make policy decisions assuming the worst-case scenario. We're finally going to learn exactly what the truth of the situation is, and I think we're going to beat all the worst estimates of the models out there, which is a good thing. But there's still a lot of 
of just deaths and cases we're going to have to work through until we get to that peak number. So like I said, there we have uh, 9,500 people who have died from this virus overall. And starting on this past Wednesday, what we started seeing was that about 1,000 people a day were dying. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and today, at least a minimum of 1,000 people died from this virus each one of those days. So we've hit a very particular threshold. And by the time you read this on Monday, at some point, the news alerts are going to go off on Monday saying that 10,000 people have died from the coronavirus. So that is the mile marker we're going to hit on Monday. And the question isn't when are we going to hit it on Monday. The question is whether or not we're going to also cross 20,000 this week as well. Because that 1,000 person mark there, it's grown a little bit. It's more around 1,200 right now. And so if that continues to grow, you could see us be closer to 20,000 by the end of the week. It's taken all this time to work our way up to 10,000, and now we could hit 20,000 in the span of a week. So that is the big marker there. And if it goes up faster than that, then that tells you that we are peaking at a faster rate than what we may anticipate here. So those are the two those are the you know the big overarching total numbers. If you're breaking them down and looking at a percentage of the whole, 12.4% of everyone who gets a positive test is hospitalized. And that's a low number. Because if you look at the COVID tracking project, they will tell you right now that they don't have all the number of people who have been hospitalized, and they don't they can't include that into the overall number of positive tests overall. So this is hospitalization number is more than likely lower than what we know. It could be much higher. I don't imagine that it's too much higher, but it is higher than 12.4%. So that is pretty high. And then if you look at the, you put the death rate over into that, you're looking at a 2.9% death rate from this across all of the positive cases. And if you remember the seasonal flu that everyone was comparing this to for a while, it had a, you know, an under 1% chance. It was 0.1%. Uh, 0.1% was the number where you would expect the death rate to be for a seasonal flu. Now, what people will say to this is that these numbers are obviously too high because we do not have the full number of cases. What they'll say is that we don't have the, denomin- the denominator here, which is we don't have the total number of people who tested positive for this case, for this for this disease. And that is, that's correct. We don't have the denominator at all. But the odds of us getting that anytime soon will not happen until after the fact. So you have to plan right now like that nearly 3% death rate, and that's being inflated some by places like New York, but you have to act as if that is the real deal, and you have to plan accordingly. You can't plan for a best-case scenario. And I mentioned New York there. The they, are, they continue to be the caveat to all of this because they are right now, by themselves, nearly 37% of all positive cases in the United States are coming from New York. So that's, you know, one in three. It's it's a very high number. That should, it was it was a little over 40% last week, and it's going to go down more this week. And that's because more of these southern cities, places like New Orleans, Atlanta, some of these places in Florida, 
and the Rust Belt cities in Detroit and elsewhere, they are also coming online and beginning to see peaks. So the overall percentage from New York is going to drop, but their numbers will continue to go up. They are beating the estimates in New York of the models. They were projecting them to have more cases, more hospitalizations, and deaths. So there may we may be seeing some early signs in New York that they're starting to see some flattening of their curve where it's not this sharp exponential spike that everyone was fearing, and that was the direction it's being headed for all this time. The, the caveat to that is that New York has tended to report lower numbers over the weekend, and then you see a spike on Tuesday. Nate Silver was the first one, I think, who pointed this out, and I think he's right on that. For whatever reason, you see a small lag, and then there's more that happens in the middle of the week. So the key difference here will be to measure Tuesday through about Friday and compare that week to week to see where New York is. And this is the peak week, so we're going to know whether or not New York has turned a corner by the middle of the week. So those are your top-line numbers like I said, testing is finally where it needs to be. It's insane a little bit that we have hit this point in April. We needed to be at this point at at least the beginning of March. We really needed that to ramp up fast. That would have allowed us to to contain this and know where it was happening. But that's just where we are now. We're finally at in a month later. We know that there are more asymptomatic cases out there. So the question is whether or not we can catch them and then get these people to quarantine. I don't know if that will happen this week, but hopefully it does. But if you start seeing a a series of charts come out that show that the curve is finally being flattened and cases are beginning to go down, that means that our efforts are making a difference. So with that, I wanted to switch over and talk about the modeling that's happening. The White House is relying on one main form of model here. It's the IHME model, which you can Google. You can just Google IHME coronavirus model or COVID-19. The White House is using it, so it's around the top spot on Google right now. And so they're using this model and others to show what the range is for the peak of this virus and what people can expect moving forward. And what I would remind you about models is that Different models are always testing out different variables to give you a range of possibilities. It's not so much about giving you an exact prediction of what's going to happen, but showing you a range instead. That's where I've seen a lot of people go astray here, and it's why I've written that most people just need to ignore what the models say and focus on the real data and just focus on being prepared, because if you don't understand what these are made for, you're going to just end up fear-mongering people. And I've seen a lot of people use these just to scare other people that they know, and it's it's ruining friendships. So that's not what you want to see. And so right now, the range of possibilities show that this virus is going to peak nationally. And I emphasize nationally here because when you're looking at national numbers on this virus, that's really more of a general average. There's no true national prediction here that's any worth, because what you want to know is what's happening in each state. And if you go and look at this model, it'll give you an estimate of when the when the peak for this virus is for each state. Some, some peaks aren't expected to hit until late May. Others may have been hit this past week or, you know, even today. So there's a wide range here. 
But overall, the expected national peak is expected to hit sometime between April 14th and the 24th. So that's why I said we're entering into the very heavy portion of the calendar here where we're going to learn whether or not what we did is having any effect. Because if the number of cases and number of hospitalizations and the number of deaths stay below what the model projects during this period of time, it means that what we're doing is having a strong impact. And that's a good thing. And you have to remember that Dr. Fauci originally said either a week or two weeks ago that the range of possibilities for the models were saying that between 100,000 and 240,000 people were expected to die from this virus. Right now, the very same models are projecting that we're only going to see 93.5 thousand die. So we're right under the line for the 100,000 um, 100, mark there. That's There's still a big variance. There's a big variance with that number. But it means right now that all trends in the models are suggesting that we're underneath the low end of the older projections that where they put the White House put out. So I expect that we should beat the 100,000 projection. And I'm basing that on the fact that our our social distancing, the hand washing, everything, all the shutdowns, the mandatory shutdowns that we've done, I believe that's going to make an impact here that's going to bring us in well under. I think there's a chance we could be closer to 50,000 than 100,000 here if things work out really well. That could be the really low number that we could hit here. But as long as you know, if as long as we're averaging about a thousand people dying a day from this, that still means you're going to rack up a very large death count in the end. So we still have a lot of work to do in the interim. So the big thing is learning whether or not the pharmaceutical, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, whether or not those are working, and we're going to find that out very soon. And the, the thing about models is that the early ones that we were looking at with this were projecting, you know, between one to two million. Some people were even saying three million people and you could die from this virus. And that's not going to happen. All the early models did was show you what would happen if nothing took place and we did nothing to stop exponential growth of this virus. Because even if you allow exponential growth, you're still going to see it top out at some point. It's not going to just run through absolutely everybody in the population. We haven't seen anything like that in a very long time. So you would still expect it to top out, and that's what they were saying then, but we obviously didn't do nothing. We chose to take action, and in this case, we've taken drastic action, which means we've saved a lot of lives in the process. And one of the reasons I'm pointing that out that we've backed it down from one to two million to a hundred to two hundred thousand to now we could be well below a hundred thousand is that one of the reasons I know this is working so far is not just because the models are changing because but that we're seeing other diseases show an impact. So for instance, I saw some charts this week based off CDC data that said that non-COVID-19 related pneumonia deaths were the lowest that we've seen in years. And the chart just showed those pneumonia deaths just falling, falling off a cliff. It was just a straight drop. So a lot, because of all the social distancing and everything, people who would normally have these infectious diseases are not being able to spread it. And so a lot more people are surviving because of that. So I'm wondering, and I have no way to prove any of this, but I'm wondering if there's going to be a way after this to project how many people we would have saved, we've saved from other diseases 
who would have died if we hadn't done anything, just gone along like normally, versus how many are going to die from COVID-19. It could be this really weird scenario where you could see us sort of level out overall the number of deaths just because we've saved people both from the COVID-19 and also save people from these other infectious diseases. That'll be something we we won't be able to know for another year, year and a half, maybe even longer. But it would be an interesting it wouldn't be an interesting statistical study to do to see how much impact the social distancing has had in preventing not just COVID-19, but other infectious diseases. So like I said, I think I think we're going to beat 100,000 and that would be a huge success. If we did that, that would just be a huge success. Donald Trump would absolutely deserve praise for beating those numbers because we are performing much better than just about any country in Europe pretty easily. And we are trending closer to what you would expect in one of the Asian countries. That was our goal all along. We're not going to have the the overall you know low death numbers that those countries had, but we're still going to perform well overall which is a credit to our healthcare system. You see people like Bernie Sanders and all these others talk about how this is proof we need Medicare for all, and, and in reality, no, it's not. All these European countries have single-payer systems, and those systems have failed time and time again. In fact, if you look at the death rate in the United Kingdom, that far more people are dying there with their entire health systems than here because we took action faster, and we took action first when we had that. Now, could we have done better? Uh, absolutely. There are a, just, there's just a slew of things we could have done better. We basically wasted two months. I saw some news stories out of ABC, I believe it was, who talked about how the United States had wasted two months where we shut down travel and then didn't do anything for two months, and that is the great failure in this part for the Trump administration. I don't know how much blame I put on him, primarily because I put so much blame in that period of time for the turf war battle that broke out between the CDC and the FDA on how to how to crank out and administer these tests and how much regulation prevented the private sector from stepping in to help out. That is one of my main takeaways here because there's been some brilliant reporting over the dispatch just talking about what happened during those missing two months. And if we had fixed that, we probably would have kicked, nipped this thing in the bud and we wouldn't see anything near the peak that we would have seen now. You, you probably would have seen this thing peak in March and we would have had a very big impact. It would have been closer to what we saw with the SARS epidemic or pandemic in 2003 where it spread quickly, but because the World Health Organization wasn't tied to China and because the Bush administration had many pandemic plans put in place, we were able to act quickly and accordingly and avoid all the economic shutdowns because we had a plan in place. If you go back and you look at the swine flu epidemic, you saw also the fingerprints of the Bush administration on that too because during those years he had built up a large stash of Tamiflu and other preventative measures And as we're walking into this pandemic, it was very clear that we were not prepared, not only for this, we wouldn't be prepared for even another flu epidemic. If, you know, another swine flu hit, it would have hit us much harder this time because we would not have been anywhere near as prepared as we were this time. So I think we're going to win this round and fall under 100,000. That's going to be a good thing. There's still going to be a lot of people who are going to die from this. I know some of my friends, and particularly some of you guys, have experienced deaths in your families. But we're going to win this round. 
And the question is whether or not we get a round two in the fall or the winter. There's no way to really know that yet. And even if we do, our toolbox for that time will be far different than it would be you know, this first round. So there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to think through from all the things we're seeing right now. And there's lots of things to study just because if we're also knocking out other diseases, we're making an impact in all other areas of people's lives. But that's all I've got to say on the top line numbers and just where things are headed generally. I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk through the economic impacts and all the economic numbers that came out this week. All right, we're back talking about the economic impact of the coronavirus. One of the things that I I keep saying about this is that we've had a consistent balancing act to perform with this. On the one hand, you have to protect public health and try to guard against the coronavirus. And on the other hand, you're balancing the economic impacts of shutting down the economy, or at least a partial shutdown is what we're doing right now. Remote work has made a lot of this different nowadays. What we're doing right now is unprecedented in U.S. history. We have never done anything like this in the history of our country. You could go back and find individual towns and cities quarantining, but not shutting down an entire country. So this is new, this is drastic, and we're going to learn a lot from it. And I want to return to, you know, sort of the top-line number approach, sort of like we did in the previous section. The top-line numbers here are finally beginning to come in. Instead of dealing with some of the weekly reports, we're finally getting some of the monthly reports, and they're not very good. We have our first official jobs report, and I'll just tell you right at the outset, I, I don't believe this is a jobs report, primarily because I don't think it accounts for everything that happened. So this is the jobs report for the month of March. March was a very fast-moving month where every day seemingly some new response came out from a state or local government that would have impacted people's jobs and lives. And so I think what you're going to see is that when we get towards the end of this month and we get to May and we see the April report, we're going to see revisions for March, which are going to show even more jobs loss. So I want you to keep that in mind because the top line number for March was that we lost 701,000 jobs in that month alone. And I don't believe that number primarily because I believe that number needs to be higher just based on what we saw. And that is an astonishingly high number of jobs lost all in one shot. So I think there's some delay. I don't think there's anything, you know, purposely being put out here. I just think there's a lot of data delay that, that happened just due to the sheer quickness of events that happened in March. So expect for that number to get revised up. I don't know how much, but I do expect it to get revised up. And from those, from that 701,000, 459,000 of those jobs were in the travel and leisure sector alone. The broader measure of unemployment that I would use during this, these periods of times, and even during a recession, I don't think the main line is very helpful, but it's called the U6 unemployment number. And what it does is it measures not only those who are unemployed, but those who are taking on part-time work to offset because they're looking for full-time work in the in the process. That percentage jumped to up to 8.7%, and it previously sat at 67 So a very large jump there in the U6, which tells you that millions and millions of people are not just losing their jobs, they're also taking on part-time work to offset some of these job losses. 
Now, the reason that I don't believe that 701,000 number is that the weekly unemployment claims we've seen over the last two weeks have been just astronomical. We've seen nearly 10 million people file for unemployment over the last two weeks. We had about 3.3 million the first week and then over 6, I think it was 6.6 million filed in the second week, which brings us pretty much right there to 10 million. And just to give you some perspective, that's nearly 10 million people. To give you some perspective here, at the height of the Great Recession in 08 and 09, we had 15.4 million people unemployed. So people lost their jobs, but they were losing it a lot slower than what we've seen now. We could surpass that number very easily from what we've seen here because we're already almost at at 10 million. And this past week, 6.6 filed for unemployment claims. So if you have another week like this past week, we're going to have more people who are unemployed here than we ever did during the height of the Great Recession during that entire period of time, and we've done it in the span of a month. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, he told Congress in his testimony before all this really got going that they believed that 20% unemployment was on the table, so one in five. The Federal Reserve is projecting a higher number. They're projecting that we could hit 32% of the overall jobs market could be unemployed. So that's almost one in three workers. That would mean we would have 47 million people unemployed. That is a higher number that we saw even at the height of the Great Depression. So the the numbers that are coming out here and what we're doing when we're shutting down the economy, they are truly astronomical. It is hard to process what we're seeing here because in a recession and even in the Great Depression, when you saw all these jobs losses take place, it took place over a period of time. So, you know, in the Great Recession, that was about a year, year and a half long period of time where we were bleeding jobs left and right and people were losing, you know, employment. That still happened even at you know, if it was a bad month and it would still be six figures. We weren't showing some of these massive losses that we're seeing here. So What we're staring at is something that we've never seen before. And even given all of that, there's still optimism because this is not a recession per se. It's more of a natural disaster. That's what some of the economic and finance guys in the Trump administration are saying. And I agree with that analogy just because this is not a recession or depression where something has gone wrong. Systemically, it is a natural disaster. The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday that they estimate that 29% of the economy is shut down completely in the United States. So almost a full third is completely idle right now, where nothing is happening in those sectors. And we know, you know, obviously some of them are going to be restaurants and leisure and other things. But apart from that, it's not just that 29% of the economy is shut down. It's that 8 out of 10 counties in the entire United States, 8 out of 10, are under mandatory lockdowns. The official number is 82%, so 8 out of 10, a little higher than that. And uh, th- those those counties represent 96% of the overall economic output in this country. So that is how broad the impact is. And I know you hear people talking about how this involves everybody and everybody's having to pull together in order to survive this event, but th- this truly is something that we've never seen before. There is no place that you can go to get around this. There's no industry that's not being impacted. This is a thorough impact of the entire economy. It's unlike 
anything we've ever seen, and really it's unlike anything we've ever done. We've never done something in the entirety of this country where we just flat out shut down. You had, you know, you had, you know, in World War II, you still had industries that were working and preparing goods. There were things were rationed and other things like that were happening, but industries were still alive. They may have been pushing towards a war effort, but they weren't stopped completely. At most, you saw certain industries deal with rationing, and that was all part of the war effort. And so it wasn't this big economic shock to the system. People were working towards that goal. And even in, even in, with events like the Civil War, there was still industry and farming and everything happening, even though that would be a dramatic impact. We've never seen anything like this, and we've never brought our entire economy to a full stop like this. So what, what you're experiencing and seeing here is truly historic in a way where you will tell your kids what happened here just because this is something that's going to show up in the history books. Now, like I said, even though it's historic, it's also not in line with the Great Recession or the Great Depression. There's no systemic failures here. This is a natural disaster. Now, the caveat to that is something that I've pointed out both in writing and on this podcast. It's that the thing to watch is the corporate debt bubble and overall corporate debt being delinquent, where people are being foreclosed on and their debt is sending them underwater. So that means if you start seeing big businesses just file for bankruptcy or just go under because of this, that could trigger a broader move. Now, it's not in anyone's interest for that to take place. That's why you're seeing big banks like Bank of America and some of these other big lenders say, we will work with you, we will help you defer, because it's not in their best interest to have everybody defaulting all at once. That would cause a systemic shock. All these banks learned that lesson during 2008, and so everybody is working right now to prevent these businesses from going under, because that would be a very bad outcome for them. The more this is allowed to linger and work its way through the economy, the more you're going to see that corporate debt bubble become a larger and larger threat to the national economic health. So that is the caveat there. I do think, as I wrote this past week, that Congress is going to have to pass another relief bill. Primarily, I think they're going to have to do that for just individual Americans because one check of $1,200 per individual, and you know, even if you get more as a family, I just don't see that cutting it to help people survive long term because th- that check is really to help people last through, you know, pick themselves up after this past month, and now they're already having to work through this month. And you're asking a lot of people to do that when you have this many people out of work. You might be able to do it in some of the smaller markets where expenses are lower, but in some of these bigger cities, it's just not going to cut it. So there's just going to have to be a lot of things here where you're going to have to see people pull together to prevent a larger systemic failure from taking place. Now, like I said in the first part of the show, the next two weeks that are really important, and that's true on the economic side, too. These next two weeks, we're really going to feel the maximum amount and a maximum pressure that you can feel on both sides of this balance that we're doing. You're going to see the maximum amount of, you know, deaths and cases and all the aftermath of that. We're going to, you know, learn if we haven't controlled this as best we will, you're going to see those deaths go up quite a bit. And we're also going to feel the maximum amount of economic pain from this period of time. This is where everything you have has, is converging all at once, which is why you really want those checks going out this week. 
the checks from the government need to go out to individuals this week to help offset what they're going. Everybody's going to be experiencing this next week in order to you know make sure people have groceries, and they can make it to the end of the month. And if any avenue appears for the federal government, if they see anything, so if Trump sees anything that allows even a partial reopening of any part of it, I it wouldn't shock me if you he starts pushing people to go that direction, just to reopen any part of the economy, to see some growth, to see some demand come back, see some supply in any shape, form, or fashion. Because there's just you're asking too much to ask people to survive this long term. Those government checks should help, but what we really need is more business relief to prevent the mass closings. And so that's why you're, we've already had some, you know, people are calling them bailouts. It's really more just lifelines right now to keep people afloat because there's nothing wrong with the economy. If you go back at the beginning of the year, we were fine economically, and people were talking about Trump running on a strong economy going into November. This is a different situation. This is a natural disaster that requires immediate response. And so these checks need to start going out to give people relief now. And we've got to get the, keep these businesses afloat because if we do, it, we can return to some of the economic you know, bounty that we had prior to this. Either way, there's going to be a big reshuffling of the job market and the business market after this because businesses are going to go under anyway. And people are going to change jobs because they've been forced out. So there's just going to be a big flurry of activity that's going to take place on the back side of this that's just unavoidable. You've got, you know, if all these people, if we hit the maximum number here, even if we have, you know, a V-shaped recovery where we hit rock bottom and then we bounce back up, and let's say it's the worst of it that the Federal Reserve is predicting, that means at some point you're going to have 47 million people out of work. And if that's the case you still have to figure out how they get all reemployed on the backside of that. And even if it happens quickly, and it happens, you know, and the economy bounces back stronger than ever before, you're still going to have people who are going to be reshuffled in all this. So there could be a very large switch happening here where people are going to be in new places at the end of this that you just, you couldn't have predicted. Just even a month ago, you couldn't have predicted this was going to take place. So that is the big picture thing to watch there as we move forward, watching, you know, what happens in the job market, what's going to happen in these unemployment claims. I know every single state system that exists for unemployment claims has been swamped. I've been watching Florida in particular because their unemployment webpage they have hasn't even been running. People haven't been able to get anything through. I know one guy, it took him over a week to finally get his application through. So there is a lot happening there. There's going to be a lot of people, a lot more people filing for unemployment. So it takes a lot of prayer. People are going to have to survive this, this, this natural disaster of a kind. It's certainly survivable, but there's just a long way to go. And the next two weeks are going to be the roughest of all of them. Just going off all the data, all the modeling, and all the economic numbers that we've seen so far, we know more is to come. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. The newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so if you sign up before Friday, you will get it the next issue and you'll get the columns that are linked there. If you are a subscriber to the Dispatch, take a look, 
in your email, you should see a link to my latest piece that's going live there Monday morning. Uh, by the time you hear this, it should already be up, so you can just go over there. If you don't get, if you're not subscribed to Dispatch, you should. They offer a lot of great services, um, and I've got a column going over there. So if you go, it should be up no later than like 8 a.m. Central Time. So go over there and check that out. I wrote a column for them on how the United States should rein in the World Health Organization. So it's a pretty good piece. I enjoyed writing it, and they look forward to publishing it. So look for that there. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews. They really help out a lot. I hope you guys tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.